Just before last Chrissy, a gigantic cylindrical aquarium in a Berlin hotel suddenly exploded, sending millions of litres of water and thousands of unfortunate fish spilling out into the streets. Sadly, not the first time aquarium fish have met an untimely end. Indeed, the history of the modern aquarium is a rather sorry affair, dating back to the Victorian era. Now, that history is a subject of a new book called Goldfish in the Parlour, the Victorian craze for marine life, written by John Simons and published by Sydney University Press. John is a British-Australian writer, emeritus professor at Macquarie, currently based in Tassie, and he joins me from Hobart. First of all, John, welcome. Your book was partly inspired by a personal encounter you had with a fish at Sydney's aquarium. May I invade your privacy and ask about it? Yeah, that's that's correct, Philip. Um, my books often start with uh, a meditation about a personal experience with an animal, and, and in this case it presented itself uh, very easily. Um, I was in uh, visiting Sydney Aquarium, I think it was about um, 2005, I went to a, a, a large tank with assorted fish in it and uh, a knob-headed wrasse, a big fish, swam up to me and hovered at my eye level, holding my eye, and I, I looked at it and it looked at me <laughs> and uh, I started to think about it in terms of, well, you know, does this fish know I'm there? Does it, is it looking at me? What's it processing? And then the next time I went to Sydney Aquarium, which I think would have been sometime in the 2010 or something like that, I went to the tank and the same fish, because they're quite long-lived fish, the same fish swam up and did exactly the same thing. Now, maybe it does that with everybody it sees, uh, <laughs> but maybe it remembered me. Who knows? But it, 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 it set me thinking about fish in a way that I hadn't thought about fish before. Okay, let's go back to Victorian England, mm. the mid-1800s, mm. and the first attempt to create a public fish house mm. at the rather troubled London Zoo. As you, as you rightly say, it, by the 18, 1850s, the zoo was having financial trouble and they, and they got a, a new, what we would now call a CEO in, called uh, David Mitchell, who hit upon the idea of having what he called a star animal, and each year they would have a new star animal. And uh, this was a strategy that worked. People would flock to see these unusual animals. The first one was a hippo called Obaish. And um, he then hit upon the idea of, well, how about a, a star attraction as well? And this was the fish house. There had never been a public display of fish of this kind ever before. Basically, thousands of people flocked to see this new this new phenomenon. And well, when you look the, the heavens sorry. above, it was a huge success. The fish yeah. became the equivalent of rock stars. Yes, they did. Yes. Um, I mean, a, po a point I make in the book is that no one had really s seen fish before. They, you know, they knew that fish were there and they'd noticed them. But to actually look at fish in, in, a, in a careful and determined way when you've got them at eye level or you can look down on them, that was new. I remember doing a program on the glass tax, and that is significant for our discussion because uh, up until this point, you couldn't afford that much glass. That, that's absolutely correct. I mean, a number of things come together to make the fish house possible. The reduction in the glass tax is, is a major one. Better technology for making uh, plate glass, which doesn't have many flaws in it, 
it, it was a, was another changes in investment law which enabled people to raise capital to build aquarium companies and the chemical the increasing understanding of the chemical composition of seawater and how water works so these things came together at a time when people were enjoying a little bit more leisure and a little bit more prosperity after some very bad years in the 1830s and 1840s and they culminate in this enormous attraction in London the fish house it was 84 feet long tanks on both sides mm. and because the uh, the glass tax had only recently been removed, it was not only physically feasible but financially so. Correct, correct. And um, the documentation of the inner workings of London Zoo at that time is is very easily available if you know where to look, and uh, you can see how they, as as a modern company would do, were very careful in in working out what their investment would be and what what their um, return would be. And um, yeah, it was a great success for them. Now, from Glass to Goss, tell us about Mr. Philip Henry Goss, who you see as the, well, the father of the modern aquarium. Yes, the father. I I mean, arguably, there are also some quite important mothers, but yes, I mean, he invented the, well, uh, his word aquarium, but he probably popularised the word aquarium, whether he invented it or not is another question, but he popularised the word aquarium. And um, he particularly popularised the idea of beach life and uh, marine marine life at the at the shoreline, um, and that's and where, of course, uh, women come in. We might discuss mm. some of them a little later. Of but course. so he's a scientist and yes. an evangelical Christian. Yes, he was um, a, a, a fundamentalist, as we would would say now. His science was about proving the literal, tr- literal truth of the Bible in, in a way that I guess you wouldn't find very often in scientists nowadays, although many scientists are Christians, of course. But um, this does colour, I think, the way we have to understand his work because um, and he was a good scientist, but the way he interprets the data that, that presents itself to him is, is to prove a, 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 a fundamental creationist line uh, rather than um, an evolutionary line. Yes, it would have been quite hostile to Charles Darwin. Now, yeah. he, it was understood that marine plants were central to the filtration and mm. maintenance of clean water, and Correct. clean water has to be the most important ingredient in an aquarium. Yeah, that's right, and um, really the success or failure of any aquarium in the 19th century hinged on the... Um, on the filtration and aeration systems. If you got those wrong, all the fish died. Simple as that. So how did Goss make sure, or at least try, to get it right? Well, Goss used a, um, a, a combination of uh, aerating plants uh, and animals that did their own cleaning and uh, an aeration system. Really, there are two competing technologies in the Victorian aquarium world there was the aeration system and there was the constant flow system where the where the water was constantly flowing from huge tanks through the tanks um the latter appears to have been the better one but um Goss had not invented that he didn't know about that until later and um so he he uh, the london zoo aquarium was was based on aeration with some flow through and his uh, fish house was populated with marine plants, mollusks, prawns, crabs, and uh, yeah. quite common in garden fishes like pike. 
Well, that's correct. I mean, the early Goss Aquarium is really uh, a seashore aquarium. It's not an open ocean aquarium. So the kinds of creatures that were in the early aquariums were British freshwater fish and the sorts of things that you would find in rock pools, crabs, lobsters, prawns, as you say, uh, various um, anemone-type uh, creatures and um, urchins and so on. And you looked down into the tanks as well much of the time, so so the view was very much the view of looking into a rock pool. Um, it was only a bit later. There were tanks that you could look at the side, but basically that, that was the core of the thing. As I said earlier, from rock pool to rock star, mm. yeah. it was an astonishing opening week, wasn't it? 40,000 visitors in, in a few days. That That's correct, and, and this is what was usual with the Mitchell star animal strategy this is how they this is how they they got this enormous jolt in, in interest which then continued for quite a while before it petered out but yeah i mean one of the things i do i'm i'm the kind of historian who likes to get really into the sort of the, the tactile experience of these things so yeah i spent a lot of time working out well how many people <laughs> have actually been in this space at any one time and i i, I haven't got the book with me but i i think i calculated it uh, if you smooth the numbers, probably about 500 people would have been in the in the building at any one time. They probably would have hour. been more comfortable in the water. Well, that's that's right. Although, um, as you as you as you will have noticed, the the water was actually uncomfortably warm for the fish <laughs> as well. I had no idea that barrels of water from the Bay of Biscay were imported and transported up the canal to Regent's Park. Yeah, well, they they had to do that because, of course, with the, you know, in those days, sewage and, and was discharged raw into the into the sea. So the coastal waters, you couldn't really get clean water. So they had to go out um, into into a more open sea, such as the Bay of Biscay, uh, to get water which wasn't too heavily polluted. But it didn't take long for problems to emerge with this uh, first fish house. There's a charming description of a lobster <laughs> looking more like a moving salad than any yeah. living thing. So thickly yeah. is it infested with dense vegetable growth. That's right. Well, their problem really was um, they had a state-of-the-art technology uh, in a sense, a machine for looking at and keeping and looking at fish. And they put it in what they thought of as a state-of-an-art building, which in the 1850s was a building made of, um, of iron and glass. But, of course, that's when temperature control is everything, that's about the worst thing you can do. So they very quickly realised that um, it was way too hot uh, and... Um, Throughout the 1850s and 1860s, you can see their progressive attempts to try to cool the space down because um, fish are very, very sensitive creatures. They're, they're, they're sensitive to quite small uh, changes in water temperature and, and composition, and uh, they, they simply can't survive. Plus, of course, you've got um, the problem of um, algal, algal blooming. I'm talking to John Simons, author and historian, emeritus professor at Macquarie. So by... The 1860s, the original fish house was widely regarded as a failed experiment, but mm. domestic aquariums became the big thing in Victorian England and it uh, mm. seems that people looked at their fish tanks like we look at television. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, if you read the newspapers, I think every, every house had one. Well, of course, you know, I've done, I've done the numbers on this and every house couldn't have had one, but there were a lot of them around. Yeah, people kept, the, kept fish... Uh, 
I guess. They were they were a new kind of pet. They were a hobby. I mean, there were many crazes in Victorian England, particularly crazes around science. Excuse me, interrupting, but I of wonder course. if they made eye contact the way you did with your fish in Sydney. Well, you do wonder. And they, they would have spent a long time looking at them, so maybe they did. <laughs> but they, they also had back. a very high mortality rate. Yeah, even even very very skillful aquarium uh, keepers would expect to lose half their fish, and that was felt felt to be a good outcome. It's interesting that aquariums came with an adjoining microscope for observation, yes. perhaps not eyeball to eyeball, but uh, down the lens. Yes, the way the aquarium craze is sold really or was sold is 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 about self-improvement and education as a lot of victorian things were so um having a microscope uh that so that you can look at the uh, marine animals and the marine plants in in detail and, and these are actually sometimes screwed to the side of the case as, as well as portable microscopes that you could take down to the beach with you yeah it was very much part part of the kit if you if you if you could afford it um, because then you were not just having a, a mindless hobby. You were actually doing science in the home, which was a very big thing for the Victorians. You tell a wonderful story about how the uh, Crystal Palace was repurposed mm. for um, aquarium purposes. Mm. Tell us about the big sensation, the star animal, the octopus, and oh, uh, what mm. a particular one got up to. Well, the Crystal Palace octopus, yeah, Um it's surprising because we think of octopuses as as fairly common fish, and they are fairly common fish, but um, none had ever been I- exhibited before, and and the ground was laid for this um, by people reading the Victor Hugo novel, the, uh, the the Workers of the Sea or the Labourers of the Sea, depending on how you translate it, which has the first encounter between you know the the, the voracious octopus which grabs you with its tentacles and and so forth, and and you have to hack one off with with an axe or whatever. So when people first saw an octopus, they'd already been primed to see something pretty sensational. <laughs> and um, the great star animal, uh, if you like, at the Crystal Palace Aquarium when it, when it opened was presented as the first octopus to have been displayed in, in Britain. And indeed, I suspect that what you're thinking of is that uh, one uh, incident involved an octopus... Well, they noticed some fish were missing from an adjacent tank and um, they discovered that uh, the octopus, or one of the octopuses, was was climbing out of its tank, getting into the other tank, eating a few fish and then going back to its own, which an is octopoid, perfectly feasible. An actually. octopoidal pickpocket. Correct, correct. It's a great story. Yeah, and th- there are examples, other examples of octopuses um, getting out. I mean, there was the famous one in... Uh, New Zealand a few years ago in the National Aquarium in New Zealand, which um, not only got out of its tank, but it also worked out which drain to go down to get back into the sea, and it actually escaped. <laughs> they're, very, they're very intelligent animals. I was absolutely fascinated by your story about the Crystal Palace. You know, we widely know what its original purpose was mm. as the world's biggest exhibition hall, mm. but it had the second life as an aquarium. Well, well, part of it did, yeah. Although the Crystal Palace is, of course, made of glass and iron, the aquarium was actually underground, which is what um, enabled the um, the tanks to be managed, the temperature of the tanks to be much better managed. Plus, uh, they had in the person who is really the hero of the book, a man called William Alfred, Alfred Lloyd, who um, was the 
the champion of the circulation system. So there were massive amounts of seawater in storage in the Crystal Palace, which flowed constantly through the tanks. And this meant that the tanks were kept clean. And the other effect of it was, is if the, if the water is clean and healthy, you can get many, many more fish in a tank. So there was a lot more, more to see. Okay, you talked about the hero of your book. Tell us about him. Yeah, William Alfred Lloyd. Um, he was a poor man, a working-class man, who um, was interested in science. And um, he went to the zoo one day. This is when he was working as a bookseller's assistant. And he saw the fish house for the first time. It hadn't even opened. And he looked through the, the window of the fish, the fish house, or rather the glass wall of the fish house, and saw pike swimming in a tank. And he writes at length about what he felt when he saw this pike swimming in a tank. And um, from then on, this is a man who'd never even seen the sea. From then on, uh, he became uh, dedicated to the development of uh, aquarium, to his own hobby as an aquarium. And he's founded um, the first big aquarium business, selling everything that you could want uh, to set up your own aquarium. He um, he was very careful. He didn't sell to just anyone. You had to fill in a questionnaire to to satisfy him that you knew what you were doing, although even so, most people couldn't manage to keep their aquarium for very long. He set up the um, the Crystal Palace Aquarium. He set up the Hamburg Aquarium. He set up the aquarium in the Jardin de Climatation in Paris. And uh, subsequently, he came back to England and set up the aquarium at Aston in, in Birmingham. And, and he died quite young, but he was he was an astonishing man, one of these um, Victorian heroes, completely self-made, completely self-educated, and yet became the foremost um, aquarist in the world. I detoured you from uh, a comment you were about to make about the importance of women in this story. Let's let's go back and tell it now. Oh well, you know some of the early, um, mari- the most important early marine marine scientists were were women, and particularly um, a woman called Anna Thin, who was really, I think mainly responsible for the breakthroughs in understanding the nature of seawater and who arguably, and there are various um, candidates for this, uh, kept the first successful aquarium, although she was really keeping marine plants and enemy-type things rather than fish. But after that, the aquarium vogue and the and the vogue for marine science becomes a, a, a very, very feminised. And if you look at pictures of... Um, Victorian beaches and so forth, you'll see women looking into rock pools, carrying hammers, carrying crowbars, looking in marine science books. And also some of the most important early British uh, seaweed and uh, seashell scientists were, were, were women, uh, writing very influential books on malacology and mollusks and, uh, on, and on seaweed. As, as, as is often the case, you know, we, we tend to remember... Uh, the men, or the men have had a higher profile in history. In, in practice, if you looked at it in 1860 or 1870, you'd actually see a highly feminised uh, field of activity. And, and these women, people like Margaret Gatty, a uh, major seaweed scientist, were very, very well respected by their male counterparts, but they couldn't join the uh, learned societies. You know, your story has more tentacles than a, than, a, <laughs> than an octopus, and I'm immensely grateful to the uh, well. It was sort of a groper, wasn't it? That uh, that gazed into your eyes That's at correct, uh, yeah. the Sydney Aquarium. Yeah. Do you have one yourself? No. 
<laughs> no, they, I think I think they're really hard work. I think you, if you're not if you're not um, prepared to do something on it every day, they all die. Very hard work. Do you have a view on the ethics of keeping well dolphins and uh, orcas and things in captivity? <sighs> yeah, I'm I'm, I'm actually um, conflicted about it. I mean, basically, I mean, I you know I've written animal history for many years now, and. Um, Basically, I, I, I do have a, a, a view that these things are are not good, um, and that uh, animals probably shouldn't be kept in these conditions, um, e- even if they're kindly and well treated, which they often are. On the other hand, um, I do recognise the excellent work that some of these facilities do in conservation, and I also feel, at a certain level, that enabling people to experience what wildlife are really like rather than on the television or in a film is quite important in changing their own attitudes and helping them to understand what what the life of an an animal might be and and what its value should be. I've been talking to John Simons, British-Australian writer and academic, currently lives, as he points out, in Tassie, emeritus professor of Macquarie University, and he's published widely on... uh, the history of animals. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, John. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.